Welcome to the Digiday Podcast. I am Tim Peterson, Senior Media Editor at Digiday. And I'm Kaylee Barber, Senior Reporter. All right, so Kaylee, this week you spoke with Sherelle Dorsey, who is the founder of The Plug. One thing that's interesting to me about Sherelle is that she didn't actually come from a media background, but she ended up founding a media company. How did she start The Plug? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, you know, your almost classic digital media founder story. Like she was working in tech. She was working with like Google and and Uber. And she saw this like opportunity to cover an underrepresented group of black and brown founders, people who were, you know, making big names for themselves in the industry that she had been working in. And, you know, major publications covering these areas um, of business weren't covering the people that she was the most fascinated by. So she decided to start her own newsletter, which I think, you know, back in 2016 is, you know, a a kind of common thing, but that was still like the, I'd say, dawn of the newsletter revolution, quote unquote. And she ended up turning a newsletter, a free daily newsletter into a media business that has, you know, a full-time staff and is, is continually growing. And this is obviously a Black-owned media business. Um, A lot of attention paid to Black-owned media companies in the past year after the killing of George Floyd. Um, But then it was also something where you have all these companies, advertisers and agencies making these statements, making these pledges, but then, you know, leads to the question, how much of this is lip service in the past couple of weeks or, you know, maybe month or so we've had brands like GM and Target and some agencies as well announcing that they're going to spend X percent of their budgets with black owned media companies, which those proclamations lead me to believe that they weren't exactly living up to the talk um, until that point that they weren't really spending. What's Sherelle's experience been like? Yeah, great question. We get into this quite a bit. So like the first, you know, few months post the murder of George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter movement last year, you know, Sherelle did say that a lot of people in her position, they saw an influx of advertising that did happen. But she said, there was also a backslide that she was expecting. And while maybe some of the larger companies that cater to a Black audience or have um, ownership that maybe isn't Black-owned or or is just a bigger conglomerate, they've maybe still seen those advertising dollars come in, but smaller, independently-owned media companies haven't. Um, so she gets into this kind of issue of, to your point, lip service, like, there was this initial, you know, surge that has since receded. So while 2020 might have ended up, you know, being a, a good year overall for advertising revenue, it 2021 isn't looking to be the same. So there is that, you know, very prominent issue that Digiday has reported on to a degree in different areas of the media and advertising industry. But she has a very interesting perspective, I think, to that conversation. I don't know, I guess it sounds like a pretty meaty conversation in that case. Kaylee, I'll let you get to it. Thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today, Sherelle. Thank you for having me. I think it would be great to start off by talking about the plug and how um, it's it's about five years old now, right? It was founded in 2016, but it'd be great to kind of get some background on um, you know who your audience is, how it kind of started out as an idea, because it started as a free newsletter, but now it's this money driving media company. Can you talk about like the origins of the plug? 
Absolutely. So I started the plug, as you mentioned, in 2016 um, as a daily tech newsletter that really covered what was happening across the Black tech ecosystem. So everything from what was going on with startups to, um, to funding and venture capital to how cities were starting to think inclusively about how they were helping to advance startups um, as well as small businesses. And that really came out of the necessity of not really seeing um, rigorous and diverse reporting and journalism that really took a deep dive into this trend of more black and brown founders and asset managers being part of this larger conversation of what was happening in business as technology was starting to shape not just society as a whole, but our communities and the opportunities that were starting to come on board and be part of that access for black and brown founders for the very first time. And I have a background working for startups. I have worked for Uber um, as a contractor as Google Fiber and a, a couple of other brands. And kind of in my spare time for different publications, large publications, I was covering kind of the black tech news um, very sporadically for larger publications and just wanting to tell and share a different story that was removed from just the, the general diversity narrative. And so um, for two straight years, it was just a Monday through Friday, getting up at 5 a.m., pulling together the newsletter um, and just hoping that people were paying attention and were listening. And so fast forward to today, we do serve a customer and a reader base of professionals, executives, diversity, equity, inclusion leaders, government agencies, um, and other reporters. And we really try to lead with data-driven reporting on what's taking shape. You mentioned that this was kind of like a, a Monday through Friday, um, wake up early and put it together. Was that your primary job? Like, did you drop everything to just, you know, make this your main gig or were you still working in other positions at the time? Like, were you still uh, working at the startups that you mentioned? Yeah, I was still working full time um, and doing this somewhat as a labor of love during um, the mornings before heading off to work. So I was simultaneously building a brand and, you know, building, you know, at the time it was much more experimental. I wanted to see like, are people at all even interested in this conversation? And so I, I got a good solid two years of just being able to test and experiment. And then eventually I went to grad school um, and did a data and journalism program, just really wanting, I, I did not actually have a background as a journalist. And so I wanted to get some more skills and really, um, really start to marry this idea around like how data um, in computational data specifically could really be the hallmark of, of mapping some of the trends that were taking place and some of the data sets that had yet to be created. And um, so, yeah, it was always either, I was either working full-time or going to school full-time um, while building this out. Wow. That's, I have a hard enough time getting up in the morning to like do a, a quick bike ride versus <laughs> like waking up and doing a whole newsletter before my, before my nine to five. So that's, that's impressive. I mean, you did that before Substack, you did that before the tools that were available to a lot of people. Now, can you talk about like how hard that process was and how you were able to build that without some of these tech platforms that are available now? The biggest part of the experiment truly is 
just kind of cultivating an audience that believes in your work. And even if that's a small number, um, I knew for, I knew that, you know, starting off, I knew that like before I decided to go full throttle into a full-time company, I really needed to prove that people cared. And I worried less about the sexiness of the platform and more so of how do I produce and create meaningful content consistently? And, you know, six months into me sort of launching the plug as its own official entity, we were able to bring on top companies like Capital One, um, who kind of wrote us our first check um, to do some coverage on some of the initiatives they had around recruiting um, in support of women and other underrepresented professionals in the, in the workplace. And so there were signals around, along the way that kind of showcased and shared that we have something that people care about and they appreciate the opening of the newsletter itself. Can you talk about like how you went about the community cultivation and creating your initial readership base? That's such a great question. I will say that, you know, I initially didn't set out to create a business. I just wanted to talk about what was happening in, in the black tech scene that wasn't, that wasn't being covered or noticed. And I thought deserved in art and science behind what was taking place. And, you know, if I'm honest, Kaylee, I just was a nerd and I just thought that was fascinating. There wasn't a bevy of visibility of black journalists deeply covering what was going on in tech. Um, we talked about in a lot of the publications that many of us subscribe to talked about tech from a consumer standpoint, but we hadn't shared the language of venture capital or of AI or cybersecurity and all of these things where we definitely had some presence, but traditional mainstream journalism and the niche-based journalism just wasn't taking a deep dive. And so I, I kind of, you know, again, like I, I tell people, like I accidentally created the plug just out of sheer desperation for stronger reporting, more representative reporting, and just my own nerdiness to like understand what moves were being made because Silicon Valley and New York are like not the center of the universe when it comes to these spaces. But I was living in Charlotte and, you know, commuting a lot to Atlanta and going to places like Kansas City, Missouri. And these like spaces and areas that are not necessarily seen as like innovative, but had highly densely populated professional black working class individuals coming out of great universities. And it just seemed as though like media was completely glossing over the fact that these folks were doing something so unique and so interesting and it needed to be documented. Um, and so I also kind of documented my own learning journey because I was attending tech conferences for the first time. Like the first time I ever went to South by Southwest, I convinced the route to let me cover a couple of the things on the ground. And like I, pay, I paid my way there. I crashed with a friend at her Airbnb. We ate at all the free like <laughs> parties and stuff because I'm like, you know, I'm like taking a couple of days off of work in order to do this. But I just, I was intrigued and interested behind who was creating the future. And then of course, like I wanted to go into spaces and places where I saw folks that looked like me that came from my community that were also doing the same. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was, I mean, I was going to ask, like, you said you don't come from a journalistic background and, and you've since gone to um, grad school to learn more about data journalism, but in order to launch the plug, I imagine you were the one that was writing it. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I guess I was wondering how you kind of started your journalistic process, but I guess going to these conferences and, and, you know, writing for other publications, it sounds like it was a lot of on the ground kind of learning and, um, I guess learning on your feet in a way. Uh, is that right? Like how, how yeah. was, it, it was just you for, for the first couple months, yeah, right? Yeah, it was. And I mean, like, God bless the editors that said yes to me because <laughs> I mean, I was, it was, you know, I, I look back at some things and I'm like, oh gosh, that was awful. Um, <laughs> But, you know, I, I got a chance, um, even just like leaving college in, in 2010, where I got an opportunity to write for folks like in Habitat, um, like these smaller media publications that were hyper-focused on like tech, environmentalism, sustainability, things like that. And um, I think I, I penned a piece for Organic Spa Magazine. I had met the editor at like some event And so I just, I kind of started to just continue to shoot my shot. I remember literally picking up the phone and calling Black Enterprise and speaking to an editor there and like saying, hey, you know, there's this really cool, um, you know, this really cool transition of, you know, Black business owners who are starting to get into renewable energy and they're like hiring people in their community to like install solar panels. Like, I think this is a story worth writing about. And I was so, I was so nervous, Kaylee, because I knew like I have not journalist. And like it took me like two weeks to make that to build to like build up the courage to make that phone call. And like in less than two minutes, the editor, um, Darren Sands, I think he went over to BuzzFeed and he might be somewhere else now. But like he was like, yeah, you know, here, like you know, just when do you think you can turn it in? And, and I was just like, you know, I just I don't know what I expected. But the great thing was that Darren you know, had really, um, really helped me, you know, through that, through that story. So there were a couple of editors that I got to work with, um, even at Fast Company um, and Next City, who whom I also wrote for, um, who really took the time to help me to, to better understand what I was doing. And so, yeah, it was a lot of learning on the ground. It was a lot of really diving into what does good journalism look like. And I was already reading tons of like, business and tech and trade publications. And so I knew that I wanted to build something with just as much rigor, um, but I had to build up the skill set. And so, yeah, it was, it was such a, it, it was definitely just like that on the ground, you know, pick it up as you go sort of learning. And I think just paired with the passion for it, um, you know, I, I didn't mind making certain sacrifices in order to get to um, to get to the story, um, to not be afraid to introduce myself to people, um, to interview big names like Steve Case. And um, so, you know, it, 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 was, it was a great learning experience and it was definitely was a learning curve. Um, but as I look back at it, it's like, wow, like I, I created my own curriculum. This is five years later. You have a team of about 10 people, right? Like how big is your, how big is your team that you now? Yeah. Yeah, so we have we have um, three full time folks on the team, and then we have a series of incredible contractors and freelancers. So we're yeah we're we're at about ten people um, that are contributing to the plug and our growth and our reporting at this time. And it's it's kind of wild to think about because 
again, like this is something I accidentally did. <laughs> so, um, and in having the vision of working with talented people and journalists, um, we hired Monica Melton, um, who came to us from Forbes, who's an amazing journalist. Um, you know, we have we have um, Hadriana Lorencren, who is a student right now at UPenn, um, who's been doing some incredible work in covering Black and Latinx business communities in Philadelphia. Um, and we have some amazing just editors uh, who still work for full time, but they help us really refine our, our work. And um, just, you know, countless other incredible freelancers that, you know, we've, we've all been remote. And, you know, I think with the pandemic as well, um, really trying to find ways to foster opportunities for learning and for discovery and brainstorming um, has really pushed us in terms of how we use our time on all hands meetings and um, monthly editorial count, monthly editorial meetings as well. Um, but what I love about our team, Kaylee, is that everyone brings it and they bring it with the mission of how do we tell the story of Black genius in a way that is both dignifying, um, critical, and you know does deep assessment um, in a way that no one else has done. And so um, I think because we stay true to that we've gotten some really strong wins and like, don't get me wrong. I mean, building a media and insights company has not been easy by any stretch of the imagination, um, especially because in the beginning, I mean, once we I kind of made the transition in 2018 to kind of go fully into, this is a startup. We're going to treat this as a startup. We're going to build a, a strong and sustainable business. You know, it was really hard for some folks to grapple with like, well, why can't another publication just do this work? Like that's gonna, you know, be your biggest competition. And it's like, well, they could have done it a while ago. Um, but on top of that, you know, as, as media players now, it's like our, our job is to facilitate information, to build community and organize big ideas um, and really be the first to kind of point out what others aren't seeming to look at. And so, um, I, I think we've done a tremendous job and I know that we still have so far to go, um, but I'm very proud of our team thus far. And you said uh, you started treating it as a startup in 2018. At that point, did you have like a, a business partner? Was it still you that was like, okay, I'm ready to make this my full-time job and, and build the team from there? Or I guess, what was the decision um, to kind of like flip that switch in 2018? I think Part of, um, I had I finished up grad school. Um, we had done a, a really interesting deal with Vice to publish, um, you know, stories in tandem and start to really build our audience. I had an amazing managing editor at the time who had been with me for about two years. And I just felt a bit more confident. And, you know, I had gone to, um, to grad school um, and did Columbia's data and journalism program. And, you know, when I, as I was making my transition to, to finishing my degree, it was one of those moments where you just say like, it's either now or never. <laughs> like, like I'm, I'm still young. I can, I still have the energy to build this out. And I will, I will regret every single day that I treat this as a hobby and not as an actual business. And there were some other great things. I mean, we got into like the information's accelerator um, you know, people were starting to pay much more attention to how kind of the Black tech ecosystem and ecosystem leaders were doing pretty remarkable things. And so I think the timing was right. 
Um, and I also felt like, Sherelle, you have nothing to lose. And so again, you know, things haven't always been pretty, but they've been, they've, I think the cadence in which we've worked has been very intentional, especially, I don't know how much you remember of 2018, but it was like tremendous. There were all kinds of news entities shutting down so many job losses for journalists. And then like, here I am like walking through the halls of school, just like I'm starting a media company, (laughs) you know, in the middle of like utter disaster um, and, and trying to find the right formula to help it sustain. But, you know, I just, I felt like there's such a great space and opportunity here in terms of how the world is changing and, I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to build this huge conglomerate. I'm trying to start with meaningful, intentional, slower journalism, um, I think is kind of the, the, the term that was coined during that time where it's like, I want, we want depth versus breadth. And I can do as a small independent publisher, I can definitely do depth. Um, so I, I never try to go outside of, of that and stick very, very close to my principles around what this journalism could look like. Now we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. We'll be right back. So you've had advertising kind of in the mix for almost as long as the plug has been around. But I guess what's the kind of like monetization strategy that you have in place now? Because you're also you also have a paid model, right? Like you have your membership going. So I'm curious, like, how do you kind of balance between the two? And has one been more crucial to your growth than the other? Yeah, I mean, all money is crucial. Um, everything is around experimentation and getting every doll in the door that we can. Um, obviously, advertising, the advertising business model has changed so drastically for the journalism industry. Um, and we've been able to really capitalize on companies that are very much tied to specific moments. And I think that's worked for us, but we have to really create more consistent coverage of advertising within our properties and assets. From a membership perspective, um, it's just as much about creating revenue that exists outside of kind of the flimsiness of the advertising industry right now. Um, You know, with number one, being a smaller media publisher, and number two, you know, I think that there was some study that came out that said that like out of the it's like, like, I think it's like $180 billion spent on advertising each year, less than 1% is spent with black media publishers. And so there's kind of some harsh realities there in terms of the industry, its biases, but then also just the shift in terms of how they spend in general. Um, so I knew that I did not want to build a company that was reliant upon advertising. Um, I also wanted to create a moat around our work because we've, we've you know, we're in this culture and this climate that the internet brought that you know, everything should be free, particularly information. And I think you layer that on with like creating a niche space that um, that dives into, you know, underrepresented individuals or companies. And again, like there was, there was essentially like this charity lens of, oh, like you should just give all of this content away for free because it's just better for the community overall. And I felt very contrarian in that I felt like, you know, listen, there's lots of research and insights that we've been building, you know, off the sweat of our brow and, you know, any other kind of, kind of publisher, any other kind of research organization would, would, you would pay top dollar for. So why should that be any different when you are talking about, 
you know, a, a, a space, you know, that is covering, um, you know, Black insights within the ecosystem. And so, um, and, and I also felt that, listen, we when we pay for things, we have a different view and a different lens on the value of that particular work. And so, um, so you know, again, you know, the, our, our subscription revenue makes up a decent percentage of our total revenues. Um, we also license content. So most recently, we announced our inclusion on the Bloomberg Terminal. Um, we also have some other key partnerships with like Business Insider and some other um, business-centered um, information networks. And, you know, quite honestly, like part of my mission, just even as I, as I reflect and look back at why it was significant for us to build a business and, and tech news publication that centered Black, black innovators, Black innovation, um, Black inclusion was because, again, as these founders are getting to tables and pitching, you know, venture capitalists are saying, oh, we, we didn't know that you existed or we didn't know this problem existed. And part of it, it's, it's such a cyclical process of if your average analyst or even banker is reading certain publications every day, to keep themselves informed on business trends and they never see a woman or a person of color part of those conversations, then yes, when that, when that person comes to apply for a loan, it is, you're hard pressed to believe that this is something that they are capable of doing because the business literature does not reflect the true sense. And again, you know, it, it, it also starts with like newsroom diversity and what, you know, what is being considered worthy of coverage. Um, so anyway, I think I probably did not answer your question and I'm just rambling, but, um, but, this, but this is, you know, this has been, um, you know, a, a, a test and an experiment from a revenue generating source of, listen, there's about four or five revenue streams that we're really, really going after. Um, and they're all really conducive to this idea that Black business news deserves it's spotlight as part of the conversation of how business is transforming society and technology. Right. The content licensing piece, I know, you know, several publishers have that as part of their strategy, but I mean, to your point of just needing to, when you were starting out, like amplifying your content um, in order to build your audience. But now it's like still amplifying the people that you're covering, the voices that you are um, writing about. And it makes sense that this is a, a strategy that's, you know, uh, a key part of your revenue model. But you mentioned, you, so you have like four to five revenue streams now. You have your subscription slash membership. You have um, content licensing, advertising. Um, what are the other ones that you're kind of keeping your eye on or considering? You know, we're really seeing ourselves more as an enterprise product, an opportunity. And so we're still defining some of the tools that we've been developing over the last year. And so, um, so there will be more of an enterprise play um, that helps companies really get ahead of their decision making in terms of, you know, who they work with, invest in, hire, what have you. Um, and so, you know, so I think that we've been able to do this kind of one-to-one and small B2B plays, but I think overall, like as an information source, we really, really wanna tap that market, especially because the business intelligence space um, within DE&I is growing very rapidly um, as lots of companies are starting to look internally and say like, 
we're doing something wrong here and we need to get better. Um, and so I think that's wide open space for us to take full advantage of right now. Um, I did want to ask about uh, the advertising model a little bit because I know when we we chatted um, a couple, I guess it was a couple months ago now, you said that you kind of had this sort of niche, maybe a specialty of advertisers where they're focused on that like DE&I um, and recruiting kind of focus for the content. Um, I, don't, I don't know if it's technically branded content or more of just their advertising pushes are around that. But you also mentioned that there's moments of the year that are tend to be a little bit stronger for advertising maybe, and you're looking to make it a more continuous loop. But uh, can you talk about your advertising strategy now and, and um, you know, what that kind of, I guess, niche focus that advertisers come to you with um how that kind of works for your business. Are you doing mostly like branded content plays around that or how does that kind of fold into the mix? Cause it sounds like it's very endemic to the content that you're publishing already. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, you know, we, we definitely um, have a, a decent mix of kind of our traditional advertising with banner ads and what have you um, in our sponsored content in series has been a pretty big winner because we can really tailor it to our partner's area of expertise that also allows us to dive into spaces or topics or industries um, that haven't traditionally deeply explored, you know, Black people in those spaces. And so it gives weight for, um, for creativity um, from an output standpoint. Um, you know, but we do have to, we do have to help educate advertisers. And I think this also will come with, you know, our partnering with agencies, but we do have to work with advertisers and more brands on, listen, you know, black people don't just want the, you know, Hey, like join this program, you know, join this accelerator, you know, because we're hyper-focused on black and brown founders or potential VCs. I think those things are great, but part of the challenge, and I think this has been happening since the dawn of time, and it certainly was the case for um, Claude Barnett, who ran the Associated Negro Press in 1919, and we saw it again in the 60s and 70s as Black Enterprise and Ebony and Jet Magazine started to come on the scene, where you know, there were advertisers that would not, you know, that did not understand the value of the black dollar. And so there were, it was hard to sustain primarily because like most everything, <laughs> black and brown people are kind of written out of the popular narrative. So whereas you may have advertisers um, that are selling, I don't know, like and not to pick on a certain company, but like, like a soda, right? It wasn't until you had the Burrells um, who were able to talk to advertisers and say, you know, Black people also drink this particular soda. Maybe we can create an ad for <laughs> Ebony or Jet or whatever, you know, to sell the product. Um, like that really is the thinking that like, you know, Black people exist outside of like the opportunities of access. You know, it's like, I over index on air fryers, just like everyone else, right? <laughs> you know, yep. um, there's this almost charity narrative when, you know, companies reach out 
versus make us part of your overall strategy and plan because I have a ton of subscribers that are high net worth individuals that have disposable income. And sometimes like maybe they do just want to be sold a really incredible smart home device because it helps to manage their day to day. And so I think that the expansiveness around advertising, like in, in the people who are in these rooms making choices about who they spend with and who they don't, it just has to like stretch the imagination. Um, you know, but like I said, this was a, this was a conversation that we've been having for centuries, um, you know, about black life. And I think that's also why our work is so critical because most of my friends are black nerds and, you know, when, when we, when we talk tech or we talk Bitcoin or NFTs and get into like heated debates, I mean, I think about how much the world does not see black and brown people and particularly black men um, as incredibly brilliant. Um, and, and we are constantly asking about Elon Musk and Bill Gates and Mark Zuckerberg's opinions and thoughts on things and they don't represent the entire world. Um, and so, you know, again, from a business model perspective, there's some things that we've learned um, in ways in which we're evolving to really create and amplify our revenue streams across membership and across advertising. But there are some very unique barriers as well um, it, that have to do again with some of the biases and some of the things that we have to put down in order to move forward. Right. It sounds like you, um, I don't know if this year it's it's a priority to get some of those like non-accelerator program focused advertisers, like get more of those like maybe consumer products or um, smart tech. I guess, is that a focus for you then to like try to increase the advertising lens that you're kind of working in? And I guess, how are you trying to tackle that issue from the plug standpoint? That's such a great question. Um, there's some conversations I've been setting up with different agencies. Um, I've also been asking for some introductions. Um, you know, I think that I think that overall, like there's definitely been more inbound over the last year. So we're kind of seeing some of that activity shape and change with more advertisers being aware or even adding multicultural advertising divisions to their departments. Um, there's also a consortium of media publishers of color that are starting to kind of come together. Um, internally, I mean, we all share, like if I get a deal with one company that is hyper-focused on recruiting black and brown professionals to either a program or a service offering, I will automatically loop in some of those publishers that I'm, I have relationships with and make the introduction. Um, you know, a lot of this, this game for the most part is based on who you know. And so it doesn't, you know, it doesn't miss me that building relationships is also key to getting the, your foot in the door into some of these relationships and partnerships. And so, um, so we're, now that I have more team members that are kind of hyper-focused on editorial, and we're also bringing on a director of research within the next month it allows me to really hyper-focus on, you know, how can we establish a message that feels, um, you know, not just an opportunity to reach our audience from a race context, but also from a, genu a, general, a general, excuse me, lifestyle context as well, um, and really help to share more of that. So I think there is some give and take. I think there are definitely some things that we'll be doing uh, and have been doing to make improvements in those relationships 
including educating um, the advertisers and partners that we're working with. Um, but I'm also hoping as well, Kaylee, that some of the, um, the, the, the behaviors um, are also changing within the industry as more visibility around um, I mean, the data, the data is telling us, you know, that there's, there's an issue. There's not a ton of equity here. So I'm hoping that we can all collide <laughs> at the same time um, in terms of our growth process to, uh, to, to really create meaningful and substantive partnerships. Yeah. And, and it's interesting. Um, you mentioned the kind of working with other publishers in your network to talk about the deals that you're signing and, um, you know, who's who's coming through with um, maybe different types of partnerships, because I was, I was talking with um, the CEO of, of Galdem, but she was saying how, you know, it was a similar model of trying to, I guess, avoid the agency route and work together to try and get those ad deals um, in the network and and grow their businesses that way. And I, I thought that that was a very interesting strategy. And uh, from what I'm gathering, like the agencies right now haven't been catering to um, black owned and brown owned media companies um, and to your point, like historically for centuries, but it, it still seems like there is this kind of lag there. So a, a lot of publishers are kind of taking it into their own hands. And I think that that's a very like interesting, but also big responsibility to take onto your plate as it is um, in just trying to grow your media company on your own. So I, that was interesting that you had said that. And um, it's definitely something that I've, I've been hearing as well. So yeah, absolutely. I mean, I really, I really think that there's only so much you can do as a hustler. I think that this space of entrepreneurship makes it seem that, you know, you get lucky by working very hard. And the reality is you, you get lucky and you get opportunity when the floodgates are already open for you. And I mean, when I look at the last year, 2020 was our most profitable year ever. And obviously there was an influx of support, recognition, and visibility following the murder of George Floyd and companies saying that they wanted to make more commitments to, um, to pay attention to diversity, to pay attention to culture, to pay attention to um, inequity and things like that. Fast forward now, we are uh, now now almost a year later, following his murder, we've had three or four other black men shot or harassed by police over the last few months. The difference is I don't have people knocking down the doors of my inbox, begging to work with me. And when I think about the kind of resources, the kind of advertisers that reach out during that time, it's like, wow, so this is what it feels like when you, you are constantly on the minds and brains of comp- very powerful companies that wanna work with you and they have the budgets to really support what you're doing. And so, as you can imagine, the sentiments, I don't know if it's the sentiments or the effort has changed drastically following a year and I think for me and other media publishers, we, we knew that it wouldn't last, but it's really hard to see like, wow, so other people get this kind of access all of the time and not just during a racial uprise. And the reality too, Kaylee, is that like, I am a confident believer in my skill set. I'm a confident believer in that what we've built is really dope. I'm a confident believer in that I have substantial partnerships and relationships. But I also know the data and I experience 
the data every single day of trying to push boulders up a hill where you are not expected to succeed or you are given a fraction of what your counterparts are given and you still have to make it the best company with the best traction and all of those kinds of things. And it's a very real problem because at the end of the day, Kaylee, I employ three people full time and I pay them benefits. Now imagine how much more effective I could be in creating additional jobs for those who are out of work or for those who have recently lost jobs in this industry if I had the exact same playing field as my white male counterpart. Like for me, it's just intellectually lazy and counterproductive because I know that I know that I could I could do so much more. Everything wouldn't have to be as challenging. And so I have to partly compartmentalize some of the frustration of knowing that, listen, I can tell you about all the different models and business tactics that we've been using. And it could seem really dope, but my success isn't going to look like someone else's just because the doors are not open for me in the exact same way. And now it can feel very discouraging. Like I've, I've kept going, right? Like I've kept going. I, I'm never blaming my lack of ability to function. I mean, I, I'm, I'm a great leader. I've built a great product, but there are some unique barriers that have to be addressed. And there's no, there's no for me, over-engineering a business model that will change that. The industry, the behaviors have to change themselves. And so um, I'm hoping that that, you know, I'm hoping that I see more of that um, as we continue to grow. Obviously that'll be to my benefit as well as to the benefit of my peers. Um, but I just hope the industry as a whole just says like, look, we have not been playing fair. We haven't been playing fair. And so, um, yeah, I just, I, you know, I, I clearly have lots of thoughts on that, but you know, overall, like I, I'm not going to have the same kind of story as another female founder building in the same space, um, you know, because our, our playing field is very different. Yeah, you're absolutely not the the first founder I've spoken to who's who's expressed those same frustrations, I'll say. But to your point, like you're you've created a, a product that in just five years is a, a full time business for you, employs three people. Um I, I never asked how big is your audience at this point? Yeah, I mean we don't disclose numbers um publicly, um, but we have several thousand people who subscribe to us several hundred members um, that pay for membership um, and several university partners um, and MBA students that subscribe to us at this, at this time. Um, And we have, we have a decent social media following. Um, I think we've primarily, um, we've primarily gathered audience across our newsletter as well as um, our hosted discussions on like LinkedIn live and clubhouse and what have you. You still have the free product, but you've created your paid membership and now you have like a a website too. And you have all these like licensing partners as well. Like um, what are some of your growth goals for this year? Like what are some of the bigger projects that you're kind of keeping your eye on to continue that? Absolutely. Um, Our our growth from a team capacity standpoint is bringing on our director of research, really expanding some of the business case studies we've been building um, also just publishing more frequently, uh, we, we publish, uh, one story per day. So we'll be drastically increasing that moving forward. Um, as well as, 
introducing an enterprise product and um, really making that the bread and butter of our work. So those are those are our, our most distinctive goals. And I think also, you know, again, kind of going back to the advertising conversation, you know, finding ways to really partner up or teaming, uh, team up with agencies and multicultural agencies so that we can more so get greater visibility, um, you know, in front of large advertisers that may, again, just may not know about us or just, again, are starting to make the transition to seeing smaller media publications that may traditionally represent underrepresented audiences as viable marketing channels for them. Um, so there's a, there's a lot packed in there, <laughs> but that's, that's the beauty of the startup is like everything is priority and everything is important. Um, but I, I think kind of the, 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 the top of that truly is, um, you know, building capacity from a team perspective, as well as just ensuring, you know, our, our model is working. Thank you so much, Sherelle, for joining us on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Kaylee, for having me. And thank you for joining us. We'll be back next week with another episode.